welcome to episode 266 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was published on Friday 29th of January 2021. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Are you sitting comfortably? Bad. That's bad. Get up, pace around a bit, maybe listen to this episode on a static trainer, a treadmill, or just standing up. I'm Carlton Reed, and on today's show, I'm talking with Guardian political journalist Peter Walker, author of a landmark new book urging us to move more. The Miracle Pill came out last week, and it's a wake-up call for individuals and politicians alike. Now, Peter has got a great mic, but he was sitting a wee bit too close to it for the first half of this episode. So there are a tiny number of plopping plosives. Sorry about that. But we did fix it during the ad break. Now, I began our hour-long conversation by pointing out Peter has a rather apt name. My guest today has written a book called The Miracle Pill which says that a certain body metric was devised by the pleasingly named Professor Lean. So, uh, Peter Walker, what should we make about your apt surname? <laughs> exactly. I mean, my last book was a, uh, was a, uh, was a cycling book, so that didn't really match. Um, this isn't a book about walking, but there's more walking in it. So I'm gradually getting there. Well, it's, it's just, there's loads of walking in there because it's it's everyday active movement, not not just transport, but movement. Maybe even fidgeting is good. So I'm fidgeting right now. I'm like I'm like moving around. I'm moving my shoulders. I'm gonna click my. Fi- I'm just fidgeting. That's good. Yes, it is good. I mean, whenever I do podcasts for for work, I always get told not to, you know, because in case it kind of jogs the kind of microphone or stuff like that. But I will start to move my legs up and down a little tiny bit. I mean, I've done a couple of other PR things for the book, where I've actually kind of been uh, upright on my uh, on my feet um for them but i don't think the audio setup would quite work for that absolutely i mean i'll i'll let you into a secret here it's not that much of a secret actually because i put it on twitter uh but i when i was i got 90 pages through your book and then i went oh i kind of straightened my back you know improve my posture that's 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 at least one thing (laughs) then i thought well i'm not going to walk around um the, the house doing this i'll get on a bike so i actually because you sent me a PDF. So I took the PDF on my phone, took it downstairs, put it into the ga- went into the garage and, and actually rode uh, a static bike for, for 45 Brilliant. minutes while reading your book. And then when I came up back into my office and, 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 and read the rest of it on my big screen, I then actually stood up. Fantastic. For quite a bit of it. Excellent. So you, you, you're, this can be done. You can read books, you can do housework, you can do all the different things you can you need to do. And you can you don't have to do everything sitting down, do you? Well, there's, an, there's an audio book too. There's even an uh, audio book so you can listen to it whilst you walk or, mm. or do whatever. Who speaks that? 
uh, me um um i was cheap um, and i could uh, and i could do it so y- your book walker it's not just about walking uh, it's absolutely i mean it's it's not even hidden it's absolutely above board um, it's not a book about cycling but there's tons of cycling in there everyday cycling so you're right and i'm going to quote you here so i've been going through i've been yellow lining a lot, a lot of Excellent. stuff here so imagine if you were a medical researcher and you discovered a drug which would improve people's health outcomes on the scale of cycle commuting. Well, a Nobel Prize would be more or less guaranteed. So there's a ton of cycling in the book and you are really laying it on thick to people. Do you think it'll work? Do you think people who are not, you know, me and you and, and people who are listening to this podcast, do you think they'll get onto bikes? Because they're, they're thinking, I, Peter speaks a lot of sense. <laughs> I mean, the whole risk with a book like this is that in the kind of short term, at least, it speaks to people who are already kind of in on this kind of thing. So I imagine a reasonably high proportion of readers would be people who are active. I mean, hopefully it'll teach them things that they didn't know, for example, about sitting down time, which I wasn't completely up to speed with um, before writing the book. But I guess the thing to point out is it's not a book which is meant to kind of tell you what to do. I mean, it's a book that says, even if you do a little tiny bit more of movement in your life, then the benefits are really, really great. But it's also making the point that a lot of it is about the kind of world in which we live, in which it's not very, very easy to do this kind of stuff. So for example, you know, in normal non-COVID times, the bulk of my kind of daily exertion is cycling to and from work. It's only about three miles each way, but that's about 40 minutes of like moderate to vigorous exertion every single day, which is, you know, which is a good chunk. Um, but that's because I'm happy to kind of be out on even relatively quiet back roads with, you know, two ton metal boxes going past me at 30 miles an hour. Lots of other people would quite sensibly think, well, that's just crazy. And so for millions of people, that kind of opportunity to get daily activity is kind of closed off. So it, it's, it is about, you know, ultimately, whether or not you're active is finally up to you. But I don't want anyone to feel guilt because there's so many factors at 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 play, and for lots of people, it's just made extraordinarily difficult. So you you mentioned there that y- you're you're happy with with trucks and and, and I'm not happy. I'm used, used to them. Well, you're used yeah, to it. Exactly. Sorry, you're used to it. Uh, good point. So you're used to it, and and part of the, you're being used to it is because of your one of your previous careers. So tell us the trajectory, and this is a part that I didn't know about. But tell us the trajectory from a 21 year old university administrator then becoming a london bike courier through to becoming we haven't actually mentioned what you are yet a a political journalist uh based in in westminster based in in fact the the houses of parliament uh for the guardian so what what happened Uh, how, how did those three careers mesh well i described the first bit in the book that i kind of use myself as an example of how easy it is to kind of fall into this inactive life that, you know, like pretty much every kid, I was quite active. I ran around, I played football. I was passionate about football, even though I clearly wasn't particularly good at it. I had uh, asthma as a kid. It was actually quite bad, um, but it didn't stop me kind of dashing around the place. But again, as I explained in the book, as I got into my teenage years, I kind of lost touch with movement. I didn't really cycle. I didn't own a bike for a reasonable number of years. Um, And when I was at university, I kind of lost faith in my body to kind of do things like that. Um, and I did this incredibly stable, but incredibly boring graduate university administrator job once I left university, you know, with no real idea what I wanted to do. Um, and I suddenly gave it up. I was about 22 at the time to become um, a cycle career. And 
you know, again, as I explained in the book, it's not quite clear why I did it, but one of the reasons seemed to be almost this unspoken idea of kind of challenging my, you know, physique and my body, thinking, well, you know, you're young, if you want to pay the rent, you have to cycle, as it turned out, about 50 or 60 miles a day every day to actually pay it. Um, and I knew nothing about cycling at the time. Um, I'd not owned a bike for probably four or five years then. You know, I'd had a childhood one from my teenage years, which I'd not taken with me when I, when I left uh, home. Um, and so I initially kitted myself out because this was, you know, the period when mountain bikes were very much the kind of rage. I bought this very cheap and incredibly weighty mountain bike, which was kind of about the weight of a uh, moped. Um and rode it around London initially at quite a slow speed. But when you're 22, you can adapt enormously quickly. So I soon became, you know, really quite fit and it kind of transformed my life. It, it is this extreme example of, you know, kind of mega dosing the miracle pill from going from nothing to doing, you know, 300 miles a week. But the effect on not just my kind of physical state, but also my mentality was a completely transformative one. You know, it very literally changed my life. And obviously, you know, I don't cycle nearly as much as that now, but I've still kind of kept that feeling with me of this kind of joy of what it means to be kind of human by using your body in this very basic way. Um, and in terms of being a journalist, well, this isn't something I go into in the book. Um, I uh, was out in the country for about three years. I lived in um, Australia for a bit, in Sydney for some of it, where I did some more cycle couriering. And basically when you've couriered there, going back to London, it's a bit rubbish you know, compared to like cycling over the Sydney uh, Harbour Bridge on a brilliant blue sky day compared to cycling down Bishopsgate in the rain, it's not quite the same. Um, uh, but I eventually got back to, I mean, I was really, really into bikes then. So my return from um, Australia to the UK was mainly done by bike. I wouldn't say I cycled the entire way because me and my girlfriend at the time missed out some chunks. We did about seven or 8,000 miles. Um, and I arrived back in the UK aged about 26 or 27, not knowing what I wanted to do for a job. So I got work experience on local newspapers and then did a postgraduate newspaper journalism course. And I was relatively old for doing it. I mean, most of the people doing the course had come straight from, you know, they were 21, 22. They'd done an uh, undergraduate course. Um, so I didn't become a journalist. I was like nearly 30. And then how did you get to The Guardian? That was quite complicated. I mean, yes, I actually was quite late that when I went for the um, interview for the uh, postgrad course that um, uh, I uh, eventually did. One of the tutors um, said uh, to me in a very kind of nice way, he said, well, we've had people your age who've kind of changed careers to become journalists. We've never had anyone your age who's not actually had a career before now. Um, so I joined, I took this particular course because they had very, very strong links with the Press uh, uh, Association, who are now official PA Media who are the UK's national news agency, because the standard thing when you become a journalist is to do a couple of years on local papers. But because I was a bit older and I wanted to stay in London or move back to London, rather, uh, I didn't really want to do that. So the Press Association eventually, after much badgering, uh, took me on and gave me a job. I was with them for three years. And then I worked for um, Agence France Press, who are another of the big kind of three global newswires. Um, I worked for them in... Hong Kong and Beijing, uh, briefly in Paris and back in London. Um, and then I went freelance and did shifts at the Guardian website as it was at the time. It was completely separate from the paper. And I was lucky enough to be there at a time when they needed people. So I got taken on. But that's about over 10 years ago now. And then 
politics. How did you get into the politics bit? Were you politics straight away? No, no, no. I did kind of national, international news, all sorts of stuff like that. The politics happened about four years uh, ago. There was a revamp of the political team. There was a new political editor and deputy political editor team. And I just got shifted over from the newsroom to, to, to work there. I mean, I've always been interested in the political side. It was weirdly never my complete passion to do it. But um, it's, you know, obviously a fascinating job to, to do. And the um, Guardian political team are incredibly lovely and really nice. And I do miss not working, you know, side by side with them uh, every day. We do kind of chat via WhatsApp and Zoom. That's not quite the same. So you do talk to politicians in in your book. You, you, you kind of I do, you, I do. probably talking to them about something completely different. And then you've, you've shoehorned in something about this. So there's some fascinating um, interviews in the book with politicians. Uh, but, but you call inactivity a normalised catastrophe and that we live in a world redesigned to discourage movement, yet nevertheless uh, politicians refused to react meaningfully, you know, somehow fearing the nanny state. And so one of the interviews in your book, one of the politicians absolutely uh, comes out with the the, the phrase nanny state. Yet the reaction to COVID-19 has shown that even libertarian Tories, not all of them, obviously, uh, but some of them can all of a sudden uh, be in yes. favour of state, you know, very, very statist stuff, statist, state intervention in health. So will it always require acting at state level, do you think, to, to bring movement back? I think it probably will. I mean, if we look at active travel, then you can, you know, have examples of where individual mayors or councils will do some good things. But for it to happen on a kind of Danish or Dutch level, you need national politicians to be committed to it for 20, 30, 40 years, you know, and that needs that kind of mindset. But it is a completely fascinating thing because I was, you know, writing a book about a public uh, health issue, which happened to coincide with the biggest public health crisis for, you know, maybe uh, 100 years. And, you know, as you say, it's this completely, completely fascinating thing that, you know, in the past, whenever I talked to civil servants or uh, MPs about this kind of thing, you know, lots of them knew about the subject and they'd go, yes, yes, this is really bad. And, you know, we're trying to do something about it, but nothing really ever got done. And it remains to be seen, you know, how much COVID is going to change things. Because, you know, as you say, on a kind of cultural, political level, it's blown the doors wide uh, open. You know, you can't really complain about this kind of interventionist nanny state when you're just building a few bike lanes, when you've effectively shut the bulk of the country down for an entire year. And it's not directly comparable because, um, I mean, you know, we've had about 100,000 COVID deaths in the UK now. There are about 100,000 estimated deaths from conditions linked to inactivity in the UK every year. However, you know, the coronavirus death is with significant mitigation. It would have been a lot more if we just, you know, let it rip. Um, but you know, the inactivity death toll is every single year. But the difference is, I guess, is inactivity is not something that can be transmitted to other people. And also, it's a much less kind of dramatic thing. It's kind of a bit more like, I don't know, car crashes, that when people die in, I don't know, terrorism or car crashes, it's obvious. Whereas, you know, if you get a 20-something who gets an office job and then spends all their evenings watching box sets and doesn't walk more than, you know, a couple of thousand steps a day, then they might not feel the consequences of that inactivity for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And it won't be a direct thing. It'll be through things like, you know, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, potentially types of cancer. 
Um, so it's not quite so clear. In fact, it's not nearly so clear. Mm. Now, you wrote your book, uh, as you said, at a time uh, when COVID was was absolutely in the news, and also when central government in the UK, where Tories were being bullish, uh, the central government Tories were being bullish about active travel, and even splashing quite a bit of cash. And and in your book, you thought this might be a positive sign of things to come. But you also gave a caveat and you said that another possible future was one where people won't jump on bikes because they'll feel safest when driving. And and I'm, I'm going to quote you here, uh, spooked, the people will be spooked by gridlock, cities could remove bike lanes and express platitudes about electric cars. Now, it's that second future that's now looking more likely, <laughs> isn't it? Especially as local government Tories belittle and squash the supposed, you know, inverted commas, war against motorists launched by national Tories. So what's going on there between those, as a political journalist and as somebody interested in active travel, between those two impetuses in the Tory party? It's a really interesting thing. And again, it's this kind of clash between the national and the local level. Um, it, there's all sorts of layers to it because Boris Johnson is very much on board. He believes in the cycling stuff. You know, as lots of listeners will know, when he was London mayor, he put in, you know, a handful of really quite good bike lanes against the opposition of lots of other kind of local uh, Tories, whether MPs, councillors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he's quite keen. He also had his kind of personal brush with fate when he got COVID very, very badly. And he kind of came out of it convinced that his weight was you know one of the issues and and weight is an incredibly complicated thing when it comes to uh inactivity because you have to do a vast amount of uh activity to maintain weight loss but you know there is a kind of counter argument that even if your bmi is a bit higher than what the doctors recommend then if you are active your health outcomes get better anyway mm. even if you don't lose the weight but boris johnson launched what was called this war against obesity nothing really much has happened to it. i mean there's been some quite for the conservatives quite adventurous plans on things like um, buying buy one get one free offers in uh, supermarkets on uh, junk foods and on not allowing chocolate bars and crisps to be sold by the tills and things like that um, but you have this issue that you know I think in the kind of spring lockdown of last year a lot of people were basically fine with these you know temporary bike lanes being built because there were virtually no motor traffic on the road but even though we're officially another lockdown a lot of motor traffic has come back and you have had all these examples of councils um, taking out bike lanes which which were put into into place and you know coming into really quite severe battles with uh number 10 and you know you had to have grant shapps the transport secretary kind of playing it both ways i mean a few months ago he put out um, a kind of public letter to all councils. These were more about low traffic neighbourhoods, these things where, you know, you try and discourage car use by making short car trips that bit less uh, easy. He um, kind of gave a sop to the kind of anti-low traffic neighbourhood people by saying, you know, they have to be trialled properly, you have to listen to locals. But he also kind of quite interestingly said, but you can't just, you know, you have to make sure you find out what locals really think. You can't just kind of pull out a low traffic neighbourhood or a bike lane because you have a handful of people who are like shouting. Uh, and that's quite interesting. And it's it's hard to know where it's going to go. I mean, one of the issues is that Boris Johnson has got a lot on his plate. Um, and much as he might potentially be interested in this kind of stuff, and I generally don't know how much he is now, 
then you know his officials and civil servants will put 10 other briefing papers on top of those you know on his desk first and my sense of grant chaps is that grant chaps you know talks to talks and does and does what number 10 you know says he's he's a very kind of loyal minister from that point of view but i think he's a kind of electric car type he is someone who likes kind of high tech stuff he's a man for kind of big projects he you know he's kind of very much into things like uh, hs2 and, and building bike lanes is a little bit boring so i think unless he's kind of kept in check by downing street if that's what they want to do then you will have this kind of slippage so inactivity isn't just bad uh, oh now stretching my back here i'm gonna i'm gonna stand up no doubt in a minute and, and talk to you so it, it's not just bad for individuals it's bad for everybody because of the pressure uh, on the NHS and on social care. So tell us about, I've heard of this before, but it was cute to see it in your book anyway. Tell us about the Barnett Graph of Doom. The Barnett Graph of Doom, yes, the most frightening PowerPoint presentation you will ever see in your life. Um, This is connected to adult social care, um, which is mainly older people where councils um, need to provide care for older people who can't look after themselves where they're not you know they don't have like relatives to care for them or they're not in a kind of private uh home or anything like that um and basically um some councils bigger councils have a statutory duty to provide um care for both children which is a smaller percentage of the budget but to older adults and that takes up a massive massive amount of lots of councils budgets to the point that they can't really afford much more I can remember this was a few years ago when there were local council uh, elections speaking to the leader of um, uh, one reasonably large council and him saying to me that, I, I quote the figure in the book, but I actually can't quite remember what the percentage are, but he said in something like, since the last council elections, like you know three or four years uh, earlier, the proportion of the council spend going on social care had gone up from something like 25 to 50% or 25 to 40%. And the Barnett Graph of Doom was done by the then um, head of uh, finance at Barnet Council in North London. And it's a kind of a simple extrapolation. It had all these kind of um, uh, rising blocks, which was part of the chart, which show the projections for spending on adult social care. So I think it was actually on all social care, but mainly adult social care, you know, for 15, 20 years into the uh, into the future. And it also had a line plotted against those, which was the kind of declining total of what the council's budget was and at some point in the 2020s they they would meet which would basically mean that apart from adult social care there'd be no money for anything not for parks not for libraries not for all the other things that councils do and you know the author of this of this a guy called uh, andrew travers who's now moved council um admits it's a kind of oversimplified model but it's intended to you know show what the strain is and the connection to inactivity is that um you know, it's it's a kind of good problem to uh, have, but in a country like Britain, medical advances mean that people aren't really dying young in general from these inactivity-related um, uh, elements like diabetes type two, uh, high blood pressure, some cancers. Um, you know, they can often live quite long, but they might spend ten or even twenty or thirty years with a whole series of kind of interlinked medical conditions, which you know require. Um, drugs, which cost a lot, and also, you know, other medical interventions, which cost, you know, an uh, awful lot. And that has a pressure on the uh, uh, NHS. But for social care, it means that the um, healthy life uh, expectancy, you know, as it as it's kind of called, is is going down. So people are living longer and longer, but the gap 
between their lifespan and how long they can look after themselves is getting bigger and bigger. And that costs, you know, so much to the extent that, you know, if you speak to people about this, they'll say that if inactivity um, and obesity to a certain uh, extent, but the two are very much linked, if inactivity isn't tackled, then at some point, both the NHS and adult social care, as we know it, will not necessarily be, you know, viable uh, uh, even. There is also some, you know, much more kind of uplifting places, <laughs> actually, yeah, I should yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Yes, there are. And we'll get on to that, in fact. We'll get on to that after the break. So I, I, part of that will be talking about Slovenia and Finland, so countries that are actually um, uh, making a, a difference and how they got uh, people to move more. But at first, let's cut to that commercial break. So over to you, David. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a longtime loyal advertiser. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart, because of course there's lots of online retailers out there, but what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These are folks who who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. If you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show. Thanks, David. And we are back with Guardian Journalist and Miracle. Oh, there's a there's a uh, an article there, isn't there? There's the 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 Miracle Pill uh, author, uh, Peter Walker. So, Peter, uh, as we talked before the break, uh, what exactly did Slovenia, which is a, a surprise, and Finland do to get their citizens over many many years uh, moving more? Well, the Finns um, have got a very kind of strong preventative public health uh, ethos. Um, and a lot of it is aimed at kids, as well as getting kids, you know, kind of cycling or walking to and from school. They do some quite um, innovative things with that. One of the people I talked to was um, uh, uh, someone who who um, helps to run this programme called Finnish Schools on the Move. And one of the things that they did was they fitted a whole bunch of kids, or rather fitted, gave them, these kind of inexpensive uh, video cameras so they could video their walks or cycles into school and then they could you know point out you know where it was felt dangerous where they didn't like uh, uh, doing it so the local councils could be told um but it's also about movement in schools too so they do all these kind of things like i don't know for younger kids in math lessons if they're going to count they can count by doing a squat or they can jump up and down or they can sit on a ball rather than a chair um and they have this kind of commitment to getting kids as active as they can. And, you know, they've been doing this for an awfully long time. They have this kind of law which mandates a certain amount of facilities connected to uh, sport. 
And there is, again, the stat is a book, I can't remember it, but it's something like one sports facility for every couple of thousand people. Um, and, you know, Finland is a place where the taxes are quite uh, high and they invest a lot of stuff in that. You know, the Finnish education system is already well known as being very good. And to an extent, this is part of it. Um, the Slovenians were more interesting because I didn't know much about, you know, what they do. But um, there is this report card, you know, as it's, as it's termed, this kind of ongoing um, research project into which countries in the world um, are better at kind of movement in kids. Um, England gets something like a C where the very bad scores of active travel are partly kind of helped by the fact that there's a reasonable amount of sport in English uh, schools. But that's about as good as many countries get. Um, you know, lots of them are kind of Ds and Es. I think Scotland gets a D. Um, but Slovenia, I think, got an A-, minus, um, which was completely amazing. And um, it turns out that Slovenia claims with some credence to be the only country in the world where childhood obesity levels are actually falling. And to an extent, this kind of goes against the, you know, everyday movement ethos of the book. It's, it's quite sports-based. But, you know, there is an argument that with kids, you know, it's slightly different because sports for kids is just kind of fun and play. Uh, anyway, it's not like this kind of, you know, grim jog around the park that uh, adults will, you know, you know, sometimes do. Um, and uh, they have this, well, you know, have kind of two completely, uh, completely fascinating things, one of which is this commitment to... Um, equip schools is basically all the sports equipment they could possibly need. So I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's something like every school has an indoor sports facility and an outdoor one. And they have a commitment to X number of hours of PE every week. And also a commitment that every pupil gets a chance to go on, you know, reasonably regular daily kind of sports days off. And you also have these like summer camps, old like military bases, where the kids can do any sport they want. They can do kind of, you know, mountaineering, hiking, tennis, all that kind of stuff. Um, but they also have this kind of monitoring program, which has been going on for about 30, 40 years, where every school kid in the country, um, I think in every year group, uh, does this kind of battery of tests. It's like a run over a certain distance, an arm hang. There's about 20 tests. Um, and because they've got so much uh, data on it, it's all this kind of centrally um, accessible uh, database. You can get kids who compare themselves against their parents, and you know, which would be which would be quite tricky. But um, and it is saying that some parents, you know, think, "Oh my goodness, I wasn't particularly sporty, but my kid's much worse than I was." You know, I maybe need to do more. But again, it's you know, if the Finnish model is this kind of slightly Scandinavian social democratic model. This Slovenian one actually does have this slightly communistic feeling, and it did, you know, begin under the communist uh, uh, era, but they kept it um, kept it going. This kind of central planning, but you know, they've made a commitment to it, and it seems to be working really well. And you mentioned, you know, sporting facilities, and of course, famously, a lot of our schools got rid of their fields. Yes. Well, exactly. That's it. And and you have this issue, which is again something I mention a lot in the book that British governments and British-type governments tend to frame inactivity as a kind of factor of personal responsibility or personal willpower. Um, you know, and obviously there's an element to it. You know, as I said before, if you want to be actively uh, active, it's ultimately down to you. But, you know, it's much, much bigger than that. If you do sell off all the sports fields, it not only stops kids at school being able to, you know, play sports, but it's much more difficult for 
kids at weekends or out of school otherwise just to you know sneak on and have a game of football or run around or things like that and and you know that's why we get back to this whole thing of if you want fundamental change you have to start thinking about um you know central government stuff but again this is stuff that doesn't only happen or bring results over years it takes decades Mm. Uh, so you talk in your book about uh, movement trackers yes. placed on on Amish, not on you, because you, you do talk about the ones that you do on yourself, the, the sends one and stuff. But you, th- these are the, the, the trackers placed on Amish people. Yes. And how they do a ton of inadvertent, healthy exercise each day. But if we kind of like look at this country, if we look at America, if we look at most places, probably uh, people don't really want to use a mangle <laughs> instead of a pin dryer. <laughs> Or walk or cycle somewhere close when it's easier to jump in a car. And that's even when there's a great bike lane uh, that that's put in. And we know that because cities are veined, very often veined, especially in the UK, veined with great footways. But there's still too few uh, walking on them. Uh, so you're selling us a future of wearing uh, hair shirts, Peter. I'm absolutely not doing that. And I'm, again, at great pains to point out that, you know, one of the reasons, which is undeniably true, that there's less everyday activity in the world is devices which save a lot of incredibly tedious labour. I mean, for women mainly, you know, and no one's saying we should go back to this era of manual rug beating and clothes washing and things like that. Um, But we have to be creative and to give opportunities for active travel, you know, where we can. And that whole um, Amish or Amish, and I'm not quite quite sure what the best way is to uh, say their name. That whole study is interesting because um, uh, activity researchers are obviously interested in what kind of previous populations, what kind of levels of movement they'd have done. But, you know, they can't travel back in time. But the Amish live in this kind of recognisably 19th century way with no mechanisation and horse and carts and stuff. So they managed to persuade um, a group of I think they were Canadian uh, Amish to wear these uh, activity trackers. And the interesting thing is that whilst, you know, anyone who's watched, you know, films and TV series about them know that the Amish aren't um, allowed to own the kind of modern uh, uh, high-tech things, they're allowed to use them. So, you know, they, so they had these activity trackers kind of clipped onto their trousers and, uh, um, slightly difficult. The, the men are not, uh, not uh, uh, allowed to wear belts. And the amount of walking that they do you know, in this kind of everyday life. I, I think the most one person did in one day was like 40,000 steps, which is about 20 <laughs> miles. This is kind of a picture of what life was like in the past, where exercise was a kind of redundant concept. You had, you know, everyday activity and then you had rest. Um, you know, and no one's saying, unless, you know, people want to, that you should go back to that. But at the same time, there has to be this recognition that, you know, this gradual creep of everything moving inactivity from our world you know even to the point of view that you know maybe 10 years ago people would have this very routine thing of walking to the cinema or walking to a restaurant now you can get a takeaway summoned by an app and uh, stream a film and all these things are convenient and in many ways good but there are consequences you know and the consequences are that people's overall activity levels are dropping and dropping and we somehow need to be creative and not to make it this kind of penance. You know, that's what the whole exercise thing is about. A lot of people join gyms because they feel guilt, you know, feel like, you know, shame almost. And that's why 
you know, a lot of people don't go to gyms. There is, I talked to someone who, who is a kind of analyst of the fitness uh, industry. And he was saying to me that the business model of lots of gyms is based on these people called uh, uh, sleepers, who are people who get a gym membership but simply never go. And that's like one in 10, they kind of reckon. Um, and the solutions are not that clear. And it depends, you know, on each person. But you have to just find a way to, you know, make it more convenient to to a move. And I'm lucky enough to be able to, you know, ride a bike because that gets me where I wanted to go, you know, quicker than um, any other means. But for other people, it's going to be much more tricky. So e-bikes are another yes. uh, labour-saving device, yet you heartily, uh, pun intended, recommend them in your book. So why? It's because the studies, you know, and the studies are relatively new because e-bikes haven't been around, particularly in mass use, for all that long. The studies indicate that people do get a lot of physical activity benefit from uh, e-bikes. I mean, this is all based on the kind of legal UK EU definition of an e-bike, which is, you know, pedal assisted bicycle, where you have to pedal to get it going, you're limited to 15 miles an hour, etc, etc, etc. And, you know, the thing is, I've ridden uh, e-bikes, <laughs> and they are brilliant. And it is possible to do minimal amounts of work just to have, you know, the kind of power gauge stuck to maximum and not go all that quickly. Um, but the studies show that Whilst mile for mile, people expend less energy and do less exertion on an uh, e-bike, they actually tend to, um, you know, cycle much greater distances, you know, because they're more likely to say cycle into work five days a week. Um, and so the overall amounts of um, uh, activity gained for people on e-bikes was not that dissimilar to those people riding normal bikes. And, you know, obviously they just open up this whole chapter because lots of people who wouldn't necessarily want to ride a normal bike, they might have a hilly commute or a long one, might do it with an uh, e-bike. So, you know, they are generally really good things. See, I've got an Apple Watch and when I go for the the Saturday croissant and it's, you know, I deliberately make it a bit <laughs> further away because it's a nice, particularly a nice croissant. It's um, worth riding more for a nice croissant. Yeah, totally. Uh, but it's actually building it, making it deliberately uh, a long way to go and to go and get it. So when I go on an electric bike, and when I go on a, a, a standard bike, the, the the what my Apple Watch tells me afterwards, like the exertion levels, it isn't that much different. So it takes I get basically half an hour of hard exercise, whether I do it on an electric That's bike interesting. or on a, a standard bike. However, I think I am being a bit unusual in that. I'll I'll hammer on an electric bike, and then if I hammer, I'm probably not actually using the motor that much anyway. Um, except I'm going over very steep hills because if you, as you said before, if you go over that that speed threshold, the motor is meant to be cutting out anyway. Uh, but you can, conversely to that, you can if you want to, just go very very slowly and and let it do. Uh, more for you so it does depend on how much you actually want to put into it you you you, you don't have to be a slothful person to get an e-bike you can still be a mega fit person and still you know get health benefits out of an e-bike yes you can and you know conversely you'll get someone like you who kind of you know rides as uh hard as you can you will get people who won't get you know, a huge amount of exertion from an e-bike. But the stats seem to show, the studies seem to show that overall people do tend to get some, you know, um, exertion uh, from it. And, you know, it could be for all sorts of reasons. It could be people deliberately for fitness having their power setting low. It could just be, 
you know, riding on a bike is a lot of fun. And 50 miles an hour on a kind of long, flat road might actually not actually feel that fast after a while. So people do keep on pedaling after the motor's cut out and might not even realise it. Um, it can be all sorts of reali- reasons. Well, it could just be the fact that, you know, the mini exertions of having to pedal a bike, even for a bit, just to start off from traffic lights or up uh, hills or things like that, if you're more regularly, say, you know, doing a seven-mile ride rather than doing nothing or doing a three-mile ride, then it all, you know, adds up. I mean, that, that, that's one of the key things I've taken away from your book, basically, that the, the, the Tesco um, motto, you know, every little <laughs> helps. You know, literally fidgeting is good. You know, moving a little bit is just, it, it's, it's good. So electric bikes, you know, even if it's looking at your legs spinning, well, that is good you know in itself uh, with the fidgeting i it, it's a slightly kind of niche point but the fidgeting stuff is um that's part of the chapter on um uh, on obesity and uh, inactivity and there's a study which showed that people who fidget can often eat more um without gaining as much weight now if you talk to an activity scientist fidgeting itself might not get you into the zone of moderate physical activity which is officially seen as a trigger for what you need to get the real kind of uh, health boosts and moderate can be like a brisk walk or kind of gentle gardening uh, housework etc cetera, etc cetera. if you're sat down you're probably not getting to that level unless you're really really jiggling your legs around but the converse to that is that you know the, the kind of ethos always used to be it has to be moderate it has to be vigorous and if you're doing moderate it has to be at least 150 minutes um, a week you know ideally broken up into five 30 minute chunks but um when you talk to experts they basically say that the reason that those kind of guidelines were put in wasn't because smaller amounts of any of, of exertion weren't good for you it's just it's very difficult to measure them you know before you had these sophisticated um electronic trackers but now they're finding, that, you know, that the advice has changed. They say even 10 minutes at a time will do you some good. And, you know, it doesn't, it, it, still the advice is to go for moderate. So there is some evidence if you're walking really slowly, it doesn't do you a vast amount of uh, good. But, you know, um, moderate is also a kind of relative thing. There was um, a study on uh, older American women, which found that those who did you know, about four and a half thousand steps a day of basically pottering around, not walking particularly fast, had half the kind of early death risk of those who did about 2000. So, you know, it depends really. But, you know, the kind of health warning stroke caveat to add is that just sitting down and fidgeting might mean you gain less weight, but it might not necessarily, you know, improve other odds. So in in the book, you you said you you borrowed a Garmin, and it said you, because of the, the £50 limit of, of what journalists can accept as gifts, that you're going to possibly buy it. Did did you in the end, you didn't actually say whether you did or not, did you actually get the watch? I still have it. It's not on my wrist now, because if I sit down for too long, it beeps. So before this podcast, I took it off. It's now sitting at the other side of the room. But what I actually still need to do, this is a kind of audio reminder I need to do. I need to get in touch with Wiggle, who lent stroke gave it to me. And basically say, you know, is there a charity to whom I could, you know, give um, an appropriate amount for the watch? Because my plan was to give it to the Guardian's Christmas raffle. They have this annual thing where kind of gifts, which people can't keep, are put into a kind of metaphorical pot. And Guardian staff 
buy raffle tickets and then kind of potentially get one of the prizes and it raises a lot of money for whatever charity. Um, but there obviously wasn't one this year. And also I kind of got used to wearing it. So um, I, I'd, I'd never thought about wearing any kind of um, activity watch, but I find it quite useful. See, I'm not a watch wearer at all. I've never been a watch wearer. Um, Nor me. But now I'm an absolute religious watch wearer. And, and that's because of the Apple Watch. So, I mean, quite apart from incredibly useful things for, for somebody like a cyclist, uh, if you have a crash, it will alert somebody. It will, it will, oh, it good. will, I mean, I, I fell off a wall the other day and uh, uh, not cycling, I hasten to add, just walking. And I could feel my wrist going, dee, 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 dee. you've got to tell us that you're okay. Otherwise we're ringing the police. And so just that thing. And then it, you, you kind of, you've got, if you've got a heart condition, you know, the, the latest ones, I haven't got the latest one, but the latest one will, will tell you, uh, you know, you, you, there's something wrong with your heart and you've got to sort it out. It tells you oxygen saturations, which is useful for coronavirus. If you've got, if you've got okay, yeah, but then, you know, you, you need to know your oxygen saturations, all good stuff. But it's just the fact that it, 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 it tells me how much movement I'm doing. And I, I've always been dead fit. I always have done stuff anyway. But this will now prompt me, not not prompt me as in it'll beep and tell me, just I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, see, I've got to do a bit more here. And I will look at the amount of steps and I will look at how much I've done and I, I will then do more. So just by getting the watch, I've done more. But what you didn't mention in your book, and, and I don't know how much you know about this, is um, I got the Apple Watch via, and there's a plug here, via Vitality. So vitality is a form oh, of yeah. uh, life insurance where oh, I you see. get yes, yes. Like money off if you can prove to your insurer that you're dead fit. So it's in their interests for you to get fit. So there's all sorts of incredibly good deals on getting a watch. And then if you get a certain amount of points per day of, of activity, you get, you get points. They build up. So, for instance, I get my... My uh, Amazon Prime paid for by uh, my activity levels. I get oh, free coffees if I don't collect them at the moment. But if I, when I <laughs> when I was going into coffee shops, I would get free coffees. These are not huge things in in, in the scheme of things. You know, seventy eight pounds for Amazon Prime, couple of quid for a coffee, etc. But it just it's just these little nudge things. It's just, oh, well, if I do one minute more of exercise, I'll get a coffee tomorrow. It's that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I know you were saying before, or we were both saying before, it's a state thing, not an individual thing. Yet the vitality method and the nudge method might mean it, it is an individual thing in that you've, you've got to be motivated to, to, to do these things. And this can get you to do stuff. So there is an awful lot of individual um individuality things in 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 getting people moving more yes yes there 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 is i mean again the kind of one caveat i'd say is that you you know you said yourself even before getting the watch you were very fit you've always done a lot you know of this kind of stuff it nudges you into doing more and perhaps the same is true for me you know my fitness has basically since i became a bike career has been above uh, average and certainly up until lockdown, I was always like cycling around everywhere, which took care of most things. Um, and getting this Garmin watch, it hasn't got as many features as yours, but it does give me this kind of quite accurate daily um, step count, which is very useful. There's times, 
you know, when I'm not going into an office where I can look up at 3 p.m., I've only done like two or 3,000 steps. So that makes me think, oh my goodness, I should go for a walk or a bike ride later. But I'm not sure if just giving something like that to someone who's completely inactive and saying, make sure you get over 5,000 steps a day is going to do it. I mean, the problem isn't a lack of knowledge about the uh, health impacts. Most people, you know, if asked, will know that being active is good for you. A lot of people will have heard, certainly of 10,000 steps a day, you know, quite a lot will have heard of the 150 minutes a week. But it's just for a lot of people, it's not very easy. And, you know, I think it is interesting, this idea of this kind of commercial pressure. So in insurance companies saying, you know, you'll get money off if you do that. It's the same way, I guess, that some car insurance, if cheaper, if people agree to have a GPS tracker, you know, and they kind of drive in a safe way. Um, but... I think for the majority of people, that's not necessarily going to do it. You know, I could be proved wrong and it could be that, you know, the situation gets so grave that, that, that um, you know, it costs literally, I don't know, a quarter of as much to get life insurance if you do have one of those things. But, but you're still faced with a problem that, you know, if you have someone who lives nowhere near a bike lane, they've not been active for years and they get told, well, you know, you can save 200 quid a year if you're active. How do they do it? You know, it's 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 a bit more complicated. Mm. That's my that's my worry. Anyway, mm. that, that noise you might be hearing is a, a dog crunching on her bone. And the reason I mentioned that is because uh, I walk more now because of of having a dog. So in your book, you, you, you mentioned gardening, you mentioned walking, you mentioned cycling. Nowhere in the book do you mention it's really good to get a dog. So do you do you not have a dog? I don't. I mean, it fits in under walking. Um, one of the interesting things is, though, again, it depends on what kind of walking you do. There is a study which an inactivity expert in the US told me about, which I've never been able to track down since. I need to email her and find out what the what the uh, link is to it. But she told me about a study which said that I can't remember where in the US it was done. But it discovered that people who owned dogs were actually marginally fatter than people who didn't, on average, because they thought they were getting exercise. But what they were doing were walking to the park, standing there with their friends while their dog ran around and then walking back. So, so you know, again, it's a bit complicated. I'm sure you march at a very brisk pace with your, with your uh, uh, dog. But some people don't, you know. And obviously, all things being equal, having a dog is going to be better for you than uh, not, because it does you know, mean you do need to actually leave. You, know, you need to go outside and do stuff. Um, but, you know, yes, there's all sorts of reasons. You know, there's all sorts of ways you can do that. If you can't have a dog or don't like dogs, you know, you can just try and walk to your shops. You know, there's, there's this one quote, which I kind of use near the end of the book, which is by a guy called uh, Professor Stephen Blair, who is this now retired US um, activity uh, expert. And I was asking everybody, you know, who I talked to, what activity do you do? How do you kind of stay, try and stay uh, active? And he had said something like, you know, my slightly simple minded answer is to find the activity that you enjoy doing and just keep on doing it. And that's the kind of thing it's going to be different for every person. So Peter, I got uh, an eight and a half like you, but my wife and my 23 year old daughter both got tens. So explain. Okay, can, I, can I just point out factually, uh, I, I don't want to correct you on the book. But I'm also claiming a ten. It was the um, it was the uh, 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 the doctor who invented the test who got an uh, eight and a half. 
I'm just to 10 still, probably not for much longer. But I, but I make the point that my legs are so inflexible, I don't know how much longer I can do it. <laughs> well, so explain the sit-stand test then. And um, I will put it in the show links. I'll put the video uh, that you, you talk about in the book. So, I mean, basically it's, it's, it's it, on some videos, not just connected to this, this particular doctor, but in other ones, you know, it, 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 people quite introduce it quite in a scary way in that this will protect when you die. <laughs> well, a lot of people know about variants of like the chair test, which is this kind of test of how well you're going to age where, you know, you have to um, cross your arms, across your shoulders and sit down and stand up on a chair um, a certain number of times and then you have to consult charts to how good you are for your age or things like that and that's quite complicated and it depends on things like the height of the chair compared to the person etc um, but this Brazilian doctor um, came up with this kind of all-purpose test which he calls the sit-rise test and basically you have to find a kind of clear patch about two meters square where kind of clothes you can move around in and the instruction is something like sit down completely on the floor and then stand up using as little assistance as possible. And if you're like a ballet dancer, you basically cross your legs and, you know, sit down like a bird on your on your bum and then immediately kind of elegantly get back uh, up again. And if you can do both those, you score a 10, but you lose points for like wobbling on the way down or you lose points for using a hand to push yourself up. Um, and... <clears throat> There's other kind of more nuanced rules that if when you are on the floor, you're not allowed to to get up. You're not allowed to use the kind of edges of your feet as a kind of lever. It has to be the flat soles of your feet to push yourself up. And this is intended to measure all sorts of things. So in a kind of direct way, it measures your flexibility. It measures the strength of your legs, also measures, uh, measures the power of your legs. You know, if you need power to kind of do that uh, initial push. But it kind of indirectly measures other things like, you know, your balance, your weight compared to your strength and things like that. And <clears throat> this doctor had done it just as a test and had um, recorded the scores of people and their ages in medical records. But some um, researchers kind of cross-referenced his results with basically the death records of his patients who'd gone on to a die. And there was this astonishingly close correlation between a low score and and how likely people were to die quite soon. If you had a score, I think it was less than three, then your chances of dying were roughly the same as if you had certain types of cancer. Whereas more or less, whatever your age, if you could do a kind of certainly a 10 or eight, nine, 10, then your chances were really pretty good. And it's worth watching the video just to see what you're meant to do, but it's actually completely addictive. Um, but, but, but my the wife did it. I shouldn't. I saw the video and 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 then got the eight and a half. My wife didn't see the video and she just went, "Yeah, did it up again." It's like, how did you know that? That's so annoying. <laughs> Whereas my daughter, who's actually a uh, she is a fitness trainer, amongst many other things that she does, uh, she used to complete. She didn't watch the video either, and she used a completely different technique. But I think she was using a bit more of edge of foot. So I'm going to mark her down. <laughs> I'm going to give her. You should at least give her a chance. You should at least, at least give her a chance to do it with her with the feet flat. I mean, the the thing which I mentioned in the book, it's kind of interesting for everybody how they do it. So I'm still just about able to do it on. You know, maybe I might be docked to a nine and a half, but I I, I like to think I can do a, a ten. But a lot of that is just like many people who ride bikes. I've got relatively powerful legs, you know, for my size and weight, but I'm also not very 
flexible in my legs. Yeah, yeah. So I basically need to stretch a lot more or in the coming years, I'm going to, you know, start dropping down the scale. Yeah, this is what my daughter's talking about. Hip flexors, you know, the, the hip flexors yes. are dreadful in cyclists. Definitely. Well, they're dreadful in lots of people. Basically, you sit down a bit too long. Mm. You know, there is this theory that the kind of epidemic of back pain around lots of countries like Britain is because people's hip flexors have just shortened over the years because they sit down too much. And that in turn affects the way, you know, that you stand and affects your, uh, your, your, your back, which is yet another reason to, you know, sit less and walk more. So, Peter, where can people get your book and where can they find you on social media apart from of course uh, following your your westminster um uh, tales on the guardian uh, they can get um the book from any good bookshop whether it's amazon or the uh, bookshop.org which um groups together lots of local bookshops it's published by simon and uh, schuster and it was out last week uh, and in terms of following me, I mean, yes, uh, I've got a profile page at The Guardian, which is very easy to find. I'm mainly social media wise on Twitter, which is Peter Walker 99. It's such a common name. I had to add the uh, numbers at the end. Well, uh, Peter, thank you ever so much uh, for taking the time today. It's a complete pleasure. Thank you for so many uh, interesting questions. Thanks there to Peter Walker, author of The Miracle Pill. This has been episode 266 of the Spokesman Cycling podcast. Links can be found on the-spokesmen.com. The next show will be a one and a half hour chat with mountain bike legend Gary Fisher. And the show after that will be an hour with world champion masters cyclist Sylvain Adams, the billionaire who is bankrolling the Israel startup nation pro cycling team and also pumping cash into transport cycling in Tel Aviv. Both those shows will air in February. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.